Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra, and gives respect to Elders past, present and emerging. On the Yarra Libraries podcast, we bring you discussions related to the books, films, music and ideas that make up our library collection. Today, appropriately marking Women's History Month, that book is Claire Wright's You Daughters of Freedom. Claire is an award-winning historian, writer and public commentator who has worked in politics, academia and the media. Her best-selling Beyond the Ladies' Lounge, Australian's Female Publicans, was published in 2003 and she continued shining a light on forgotten aspects of Australian history in 2013 with The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka based on a decade of archival research into women's roles in the Eureka Stockade. It won the Stella Prize in 2014. With You Daughters of Freedom, she brings to life the women's suffrage movement in Australia. Late last year, we had the privilege of hosting her at Bagunganungan North Fitzroy Library, where she discussed the book with Natasha Cheecher, director of Capacity.org, former CEO of Heidi Museum of Modern Art, and founding director of the Inglis Clark Centre. This is an edited recording, with audience questions revoiced by Yarra Library staff members where necessary for clarity. Um, thanks so much, Megan, and thank you everybody for coming out on this beautiful spring day, which is of course Remembrance Day, so it's a day very um, heavy with history, and also very heavy for Melbourneites at the moment, so I'd like to um, acknowledge uh, Sisto, the owner of Pellegrini's, um, who unfortunately was murdered two days ago because when somebody writes the history of marvellous multicultural Melbourne, he'll be one of the leading characters. So let's yeah. hope it's you true. do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So so it is a really uh, auspicious day on which to be talking about this really important book. I actually first met Claire on stage in Adelaide at Adelaide Writers Week when she was doing the book tour for her last blockbusting uh, important piece of Australian history and we've been friends ever since. So I'm really intrigued by, I love, I love everything that Claire writes partly because it's um, always page turning so it dispels any myth that history is dry and dusty and not lived and rich as I say in all kinds of characters. So you're a great storyteller Claire my first question, which really, really perplexes me, mm-hmm. is why is this story, mm-hmm. the story that we had to wait for you to tell mm-hmm. us, and why is this not the first thing um, that spring, one of the first things that spring to, springs to mind when anyone talks about being Australian, being a citizen, or indeed commemorates Remembrance Day because mm. it's such a an unusual story. Uh, there's a beautiful phrase you used. I think that, that Australia was what were we, the poison testers the of poison progressive testers. of progressive <laughs> political and constitutional reform. So why don't we know this story already? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question, isn't it? Um, it is. So. <clears throat> So just to, to uh, paraphrase what the story is that we don't know for um, people who don't know the content of the book, uh, the, the book is only partly about how Australian women became the first, how Australia became the first country in the world to win full political equality. Can everybody hear me okay up the back? Yeah. 
So this is the first part part of the book. The book is divided into three parts. Part one is purity, which is white. So if I can hold up the book here. So white for purity, um, purple for courage, and green for hope. And those are the colours that we now most readily associate with the British suffragette movement. Um, it was particularly, they were the colours of Emmeline Pankhurst's organisation, the Women's Social and Political Union. Uh, and there were many other suffrage organisations that also had their own colour schemes, but this is the one that's become most read, readily associated with the suffrage movement and that period. So the first third of the book about purity is this story of how Australia became the first country in the world to win full political equality. And what I mean by that is that we were the first country to give white women rights with men. So New Zealand had given women the right to vote in 1893, but they didn't get the right to stand for Parliament until 1919. So these twin suffrage rights made Australian women the most enfranchised in the world uh, in 1902 when that legislation, the Franchise Act, was passed. Only the second piece of legislation passed by the new federal parliament. The first was the Immigration Restriction Act. And um, there were a few others that were just basically about the business of running the government. But in terms of big ticket item legislation that was setting the agenda for the country and what sort of country it was going to be, these were the two. Um, the Immigration Restriction Act, which ushers in um, officially the White Australia policy and the Franchise Act, which gives women the right to vote um, and and excludes indigen all Indigenous people from the vote in the twin kind of swings and roundabouts of, of that act. The second two-thirds of the book are about what happens next, effectively. And, and interestingly, that was what this book was going to be about. It was going to be about what Australia's women in particular did with that those historic rights and privileges that they had. But then I realised that I couldn't actually tell that story without looping back and saying how this position happened for that exact reason that you identified, because we are not familiar enough with this part of our history for, um, for me to take it for granted that people are, are going to know that and are going to be interested in knowing what comes next. So the what comes next is that Australian women take this message of their unique political position in the world and the fact that Australia is now, say, the poison tester of the progressive world, that we have the highest standard of democracy of any country in the world, and they take that message and they take it out to the rest of the world and they become leaders and innovators um, and inspirers and indeed in terms of the British suffrage movement, which is where I then track five women through their stories in Britain with the British suffragette movement that we're all much more familiar familiar with. They become leaders um, and agitators in that movement as well. And so as to why you, the, your, your actual question as to why we don't know that story, I, I think that there are a number of reasons and we're really diving in the deep end to, um, to, start, to start there. Uh, but I guess Remembrance Day is a good place to think about one of what I think is the main reasons why. And that's because this story occurs in a period of unique optimism, both in Australia's history and in world history. So this is the turn of the 20th century. Australia becomes a nation on the 1st of January 1901. And its birth um, as a nation coincides with this period of 
um, a, a real utopian imagining of what this century is going to mean for the world, that it's going to be a place where people really come to their full sort of um, fruition as human beings um, and that women are going to be part of that. It's very often called the, it's, it's thought of as going to be the women's century. So a whole lot of technological innovations that are coming into play, like flight. This is the era where the where the um, Wright brothers start to test flight. People are starting to fly between um, between America and Britain. Uh, the motor car comes in. Um, so there's the, th these kind of symbols of freedom and uh, and of levity and lifting off that coincide with this idea that um, that there are a whole bunch of movements of great thinkers and innovators. Socialism as it is in its infancy but it's sort of most exciting. That workers are going to be free of the oppression of the past. That women are going to be free of the oppression of the past. That that all of the kind of hierarchies and, and conservative orthodoxies that have held people and ground them down are going to be lifted in this new century. And the image that is most readily associated in kind of iconography of the age is the dawn. So we see lots of um, images of the ocean and rising on the horizon of the ocean is a, a sunset, uh, sorry, a sunrise. This idea is the awakening of a new day and that people are going to wake up from the deep slumber that they've been in through the 19th century, what are now considered the Dark Ages. And in Australia, when that sun rises on the horizon in Australian <laughs> nationalist iconography, it says 1901 in it, this new nation. And interestingly, the suffrage movement internationally uses exactly the same iconography, but what rises in the rays of the sun is it says votes for women. And so this is the, the great moment, um, the thing that women all over the world are united in, is this fight for the vote because it is going to be the thing that is going to liberate women from all these other levels of oppression, legal, social, cultural, sexual, political oppression and um, restriction and limitation that enslave them is the vote. Because with the vote, they will be able to change all sorts of other things. Without the vote, they are powerless. So what happens is that there's this new dawn, there's all this optimism, there's all this hope, there's all this courage that's being shown, and then there's a world war. And I think very, very quickly that um, the rays of that rising sunshine are just absolutely blanketed with the grief uh, and the darkness and the cataclysm that is that war. That's an international movement. In terms of Australia and what it represented in world terms as being the newest nation, on the precipice of this new century. Australia that had shown all sorts of signs of, of newfound independence and confidence in itself as a nation, very much grounded in this story of what it had done for women's rights. It gets tied to this imperial moment where all of that confidence is kind of both on the one level snuffed out in terms of sort of independence because it has followed Britain to the last man and the last shilling. But at the same time, our, we, we, we create a new national narrative. And the new national narrative is about what happened at Gallipoli, not what happened in the first century, decade and a half of the century. And what happened in Gallipoli was all about masculine endeavour 
about uh, a different form of courage and sacrifice than that to which men, sorry, women and the men who had supported them in their struggle had achieved. And that becomes our new national story, that the nation was born on the beaches of Gallipoli. And so this story becomes a kind of false dawn. The birth of the nation becomes just this kind of boring federation story, as one historian calls it, the eat your broccoli moment of Australian history, <laughs> that every high school teacher dreads the moment they have to teach federation because everybody's going to fall asleep. And so th th there becomes this real dichotomy between federation that's seen as kind of boring and, and Anzac and war history that's seen as being exciting and virile. And, and that wave of militaristic remembrance is just, as we can see, has been built on and built on through the 20th century and into the 21st. The last 30 years, has been, there's been an Anzac industry. There's no other way of terming it when your government spends more on the commemoration of World War I than all the other allied nations put together. And that is the fact of what has happened in the, in the last four years. And that only adds on to a movement started by John Howard, really, to send us into two wars in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. This idea that the Anzac legend is where the essential spirit of patriotism, nationalism and Australian characteristics are rooted, as opposed to the things that these progressive reformers were doing in Australia in the first decade and a half. So that's a long answer, Natasha, but it was an no, it was a very answer. it was also a very difficult first question. <laughs> well for me it was the only question really because I'm really interested. <laughs> oh, you can go home now. Because we don't know because we don't have tons and tons of time and I do want to get the audience talking as well. But I'm really interested in how we get um, especially young people, mm. boys and girls in Australia to get back to the broccoli moment because mm -hmm. I actually think this is like all your stories this mm -hmm. is a very sexy story mm -hmm. and um, I also don't feel and I don't know if this is kind would be shared by everyone in the room but I don't feel that we live in Australia at the moment I don't feel mm -hmm. Australians feel particularly optimistic about mm -hmm. the future I was intrigued that last week too um, <laughs> two surveys were reported in the media one said that Australians rank as the wealthiest people in the world mm -hmm which is very, very interesting. And the second was that um, a quarter of Australians feel terribly lonely, mm. especially young people. Mm. So um, I don't feel like we're tracking as well as we should be. Mm. So what's what are the hooks in this story mm. that can give not just young people mm. but all of us mm. optimism about what might come mm. next for us as a nation, mm. for us as a nation? So it's a really, that's a really interesting question and one of the, the, the first people who read this book, um, she actually worked at my publishing company and, and she's a young woman and um, she said she's never read history and hasn't been interested uh, in it and there were, she said there were two reasons why she really loved this book. One, because she could read herself into it because it's about these incredibly risk-taking, courageous, optimistic uh, women who want to change the world. Um, and, and I follow the journeys of five of them. So um, the five interweaving narratives of five Australian women who um, did really interesting stuff here in Australia and then went to Britain and, and were part of the British movement. And so she both enjoyed identifying um, with those characters 
because she said she so rarely sees herself as part of history in any way. And she said it also made her feel good about being an Australian. And she said she's never really felt that before. Yes. Because the period of time in which she's kind of grown up and grown to some maturity has been uh, all through what she considers to be quite a crisis in Australian ideas about itself and particularly its place in the world. In terms of human our human rights record, um, the, the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers and the advent of one nation in Australia and a particular kind of xenophobia and racism that she considers to be very much part of Australia. Now, that's there in this book too because of what I um, was saying yeah, before yeah, about... Yeah. Indigenous people being disenfranchised and I don't shy away from that moment in any way and it's something that we do have to understand the context uh, the historical context of these women and and the rights that they were achieving but she did say that it kind of made her feel patriotic and that she'd never felt that before so I I think that that is an interesting response um, because I do hope that in some ways Australians can take from this and obviously not just women I hope hope and, and believe that men will read this book because I don't actually see it as about women the primary protagonists are women but it's about democracy it's about we the people and it's about who the people are and indeed that's what these women were saying we are the people too and you must count us so feeling patriotic for her meant that she could see that it was possible to be an Australian and to be good at something other than just sport Mm -hmm. and to be proud of yourself on the world stage for something other than just winning um, a gold medal or um, a cricket match or maybe, you know, an Oscar in the Academy Awards because Australians can can punch above their weight. Really what she was reading about here was a time where Australia was punching above its weight as a nation in terms of the most important issue of the day. This is what what women's suffrage was identified as worldwide, Um, what Kevin Rudd might have called the great moral challenge of, of the age. How to deal with this global cry from women to be included, to be part of democracy, that that um, government by the people, for the people, had to mean by all of the people. That no taxation without representation meant representation of all of the people. And so how were governments going to deal with this great collective outcry? And that Australia was the country that came up with the most progressive answer first and that... um, was able to prove to the world that not only did the sky not fall, which is what all of the anti-suffragists claimed, but that the results of this experiment, and it was considered this experiment in democracy, that the results of this experiment had been very positive and good. So I suppose that's a roundabout way of answering your question, is is that I think that it is possible for people to read this book and... Now, I really, really shy away from the idea of saying that we can make Australia great again. <laughs> it's okay. I think you for can all, say it. I for think all, you can for say obvious it. reasons. You, Claire Wright, can say it. Yeah. 
But that's what it made this particular woman feel. And I was happy that she felt that way because it gave her something to be optimistic about. <coughs> Knowing that we had been that country once made her feel like we could possibly be that country again, where we weren't afraid to be leaders and take a leadership role and set the world agenda rather than always being followers and signatories and allies and, and, and even lagging behind. You know, I'm reading Gillian Trigg's book at the moment. Okay. And it's shocking because you realise just how far behind in our human rights record we are, um, how we've signed all of these international treaties on human rights and we don't have any domestic legislation to cover these very same things. And she says we are abs absolutely so far behind the rest of the world. So we will go a little further into that trench before okay. we come up again to the rising sun. Can you talk about the Indigenous disenfranchisement, yeah. which went hand in hand, as you say, yes. um, with the enfranchisement of white women in Australia and its legacy today and what the, how the book, the lessons from the book yeah. again to contemporary yeah. Australians? Okay. So, so one of the reasons that I think that Australia... Uh, was able to get there first, although it wasn't a kind of race, because all the metaphors you kind of use end up being sporting metaphors, and I think that's a symptom of the age that we live in. But they didn't see it as being a kind of America's Cup that in Australia was going to take line honours and we were going to go Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi about it. It was just that this is the way that it happened. But I think one of the reasons that it happened this way was because of this particular um, convergence of feminism, global feminism, and local federalism, that we were at this particular historic point in Australia's development where the colonies were federating into a nation. And part of that process was one of negotiation um, between the colonies, who was going to get what, what powers were the states going to retain, what were going to be national powers. And in doing so, we had to work out what kind of country we wanted to be, what were going to be the fundamental kind of bedrock constitutional bedrock, because we were writing a constitution, um, and a constitution that doesn't include a Bill of Rights, as Gillian uh, Triggs points out. And so part of that, um, and, and this is all also happening in this era where white meant right, and that the British race was a concept. We don't talk about the British race very much anymore, but the British race was a very important concept, and Australians felt themselves to be part of the British race, and the British race had a whole lot of kind of constructs that went along with it. It was a race that valued justice and fairness and rights and liberties, that it was um, civilised and strong, and that it was uniformly white. So although there were British colonies, like India, big one, they were um, subjects of the British Empire, but they, were, they weren't... They weren't part of the British race. So Australians very much wanted to keep the purity of the British race, this concept. They felt themselves part of the imperial family, Mother England, Daughter Australia. Um, there was also Daughter New Zealand, Daughter South Africa and Daughter Canada. They were part of the, the dominions of the British Empire. And so in nutting out the Franchise Act, this idea of, um, firstly, in the Immigration Restriction Act, there was the idea of very much like what Howard said in, in uh, after Tampa, we will decide to who comes to this country and under what circumstances. It was that writ large through legislation and that meant white people could come 
um, to Australia and they had to pass this dictation test in order to be here. So when they were then moved on to the Franchise Act about who were going to be able to vote, who would have the franchise, the right to vote, um, and to stand for Parliament to be representatives of this nation. Interestingly, the first draft of the legislation, which I found in a file at the National Archives, Indigenous people were included in that because they did have the right to vote in certain colonies, particularly South Australia. And the very reason that Australian women were getting the right to vote federally was because South Australian women already had these rights. In 1894, they got the right to vote and to stand for Parliament. And when the nation was federating and figuring out this, this tossing up of who was going to get what, the South Australians said, we won't join the federation if any of our constituents lose any rights. So if there's going to be a uniform franchise for the Commonwealth, it means that everybody will have to have the standard of rights that our citizens have. And that meant women needed to have the right to vote and stand for Parliament, except that Indigenous men and women had the right to vote and stand for Parliament in South Australia. So when it came to actually drafting the legislation, somebody picked this up and went, hang on, does that mean we're actually going to do this? We're actually going to make Indigenous people, um, who were known at the time as savages, are we actually going to make the black savages? And it's very difficult to use this language, and I apologise in any way if it, to anybody it might be offensive to. And But I've left it all in in the chapter on it, and it's difficult reading. And I left it in very deliberately because I think that they were expressing themselves in the words of the time, and those words need to be read. And so they... You know, the majority of people in Parliament said, are we really going to do that? Are we going to make them voters? And then started talking about all the hideous consequences that would come from that. But some members of Parliament, and this was just as interesting, if not more fascinating to me because I didn't expect it, some members of Parliament actually stood up and said, well, yes, we are going to give them the right to vote because, hang on, we've already taken their land off them. We've already dispossessed them are we now going to take their voting rights away too? We can't do that. How can we call ourselves civilised Britons? And then on the other hand, we're going to strip these people of every shred of dignity and humanity that they might have. But that's exactly what happened. So it's important to have both those sets of voices in there. And basically, the people who were standing up for the rights of Indigenous Australians uh, in the end let it go because they didn't want to the whole Franchise Act to be scuttled uh, and therefore jeopardising the fact that women might get these rights. So effectively, race, not gender, became the condition of um, exclusion from Australian citizenship. And as we know, um, Indigenous people wouldn't win those rights back until 1967, which is the subject of the third book in the trilogy, FYI. Um, yes. Um, I've got a lot of questions, but one is, could you give a pricey of mm. your five women? I'll just confess my favourite okay. is Vita Goldstein. Okay, Vita, you like Vita? Um, if we had them, if we were lucky enough okay. to have them here yes. on stage with us, right. what do you think they would say to us? You, but if you could give a All little right. pricey of their characters for okay. people who haven't read the book and you must, um, that would okay. be helpful. 
Uh, it is interesting, I must just preface to say, it's, it's interesting to sit up here and talk in this kind of quite um, analytical and discursive way about the book because it's not how the book is written. Mm. The book is written mm. as, as narrative nonfiction, so mm. it's storytelling. Mm. It's all based on facts. It's all based on scholarly mm. research, deep academic archival research. Mm. Um, but I'm, I let the people speak for themselves and I let them walk in their own shoes mm. and I kind of put them there and then we see them go forward. So the way they write, I write is that if the characters don't know what's going to happen next, we as the readers don't either, um, which is, is, is a more kind of cinematic way of writing, it I is. guess. It's, it's like cinematic. when we watch TV and we don't know what's going to happen in the next episode and that's why we watch the next episode and now with Netflix that's why we never go to bed because <laughs> you can binge that. Well, I'll, I'll jump in and change the question. All right, we can okay. come back to that all right, all right. if you want or not. But you're a public intellectual, Claire, mm. and that's not a, a phrase that's very commonly used in Australia and perhaps not anywhere anymore because the world's changed a lot in the last 20 years. So you're a rigorous scholar and this is a book of rigorous scholarship mm. and you have been tucked away mm, for a I long have. time. How many years? On this one? Yes. Uh, well, this one, compared to Eureka, Eureka was 10 years. This one is is actually lightning. This one was about 18 months. Yeah, but you've um, been but really I've tucked been, away, haven't but, you? Yeah, yeah, the writing yeah, was. And, yeah. But the research for this, I mean, I made a documentary on the topic of how women got the vote in Australia for the ABC uh, that went to air in 2012, uh, and I had been making that for five or six years. So I've been immersed in suffrage research and scholarship in many ways for um, you know over a decade but that documentary was in a sense the first third of this book that's what I was saying before is this was supposed to be a kind of follow-up but then I realized I need to go back over that terrain so yeah 18 months to write this book but you know there's a good decade of scholarship that's built so on there's all that and it's incredibly accessible and readable and as you say it's cinematic and your writing always has been you can see it as a Netflix episode so in a sense you're an unusual scholar could you talk about mm. the role, and you, you're, mm. you're based in university, mm. at La Trobe University, and mm. just um, congratulations mm. as well on that recent win of funding to get uh, your other work to the screen. Not many academics get their stuff onto big or small screens. So what's your view of the responsibility mm. of the scholar or mm, the person okay. in the university to take their stories to the people? That's an interesting Because it's question. quite unusual yeah. and it's a really hard niche to hold open in Australia yeah. at the moment. So what Natasha's referring to is that the first book in this trilogy, um, the Democracy Trilogy, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, is being made into a ten-part drama series by a production company that... Um, their last book adaptation was The Secret River, uh, some of you might have seen. And so I'm working very closely. I'm a producer on this project now and writing as well. And we, at the moment, the pilot script is being written by uh, a Hollywood screenwriter, um, a wonderful woman called Anne Kenny, who's best known for... She's been around for ages. She did L.A. Law and E.R., and but she's best known at the moment for her work on a show that I really love called Outlander. And um, so she's working away in, in L.A. at the moment on the pilot script for um, Forgotten Rebels of Eureka. And so, yes, I have always considered, Natasha, that it is very important for academics to breach the walls of the ivory tower and to take the research to wider audiences. Um, I feel... Uh, 
great sense of responsibility to do that because I think that when you only talk to your peers, you don't touch the sides of our larger cultural conversations that end up becoming the the basis for our cultural knowledge um, and very often our, our, our policy and our public culture. So, you know, when you said at the beginning, why don't we know this? Um, well, you know, it's not like I'm the first person to discover this story. Um, I'm certainly <laughs> the first person to discover the second two thirds of the book about these women and their journeys to Britain um, and and to write them into that Brit- that chapter of British history in a way to show the influence of Australian women in the British landscape. That's completely a first. But in terms of looking at um, Australia winning the right to vote um, first in the world or the, the, the equal franchise, the Australia is a social laboratory um, and, and the, this kind of first decade of, of uh, the, the 20th century. I'm not the first academic who has talked about that. There are others, but this is the problem. The fact that we don't know more about it is because academics have only been talking to other academics about it, in effect, in language that is appealing um, and in debates that are enriching to other academics. And I can certainly see the point for, to that, but I also think there has to be a movement into wider mainstream culture. And so that we uh, have this knowledge, particularly so that it can be taught in schools. Uh, and, I, and I know that some of the other work that I've done, um, the documentary for the ABC, another documentary I made for the ABC called The War That Changed Us, that, that first went to air in 2014, about Australia's world, uh, role in World War I that featured six characters, three men and three women, and three on the home front and three um, on the battlefield, as a way of talking about Australia's um, military history in a way that it wasn't so narrowly militaristic. It turned it into a social history, the war as social history. And that is being taught in schools. There's a copy of that DVD that the Department of Veterans Affairs put into every school in Australia. The Eureka book was published as a young adult edition, and that's being taught in schools. So I think that's actually where you can start to make an impact so that a lot of these stories that are forgotten or overlooked or rarely touched upon start to become more part of the broader conversation. And I think that that's important for a number of reasons, not least of which is that I think it starts to help empowering our girls to believe that if these women made history, then maybe they can make history too. You know, I, I wasn't so aware of this when I had my boys, but then when I had my daughter, I became much more aware of the ways in which girls and who then become women internalise all of the messages that are around them. And I think one of the very strong messages is who we choose to commemorate through our, the statues that we see on the street every day. Uh, you know, just next time you're walking around Melbourne, just, just actually focus on all those big bronze and concrete statues and see who they are. Look at what the, look at what the um, uniting factor is. It's not difficult to recognise. They're all blokes. And look at street names. Look at electorate names. You know, there are 150 federal electorates in Australia and only 15 of them are named after women. And, you know, what does that tell us about who is important in the past, who have done the important, valorous things that deserve commemorating and remembering by future generations. And I think those messages get 
internalised in terms of a sense of what we can achieve in our own lives. And so I, these are kind of the, the subtle messaging that I'm hoping also to affect and, and change through the way that I write, which I hope is accessible, um, and who I write about. I will bring back one of those women onto the stage. Okay. I will bring Vita back because okay. she's my favourite. If you were, if we were in conversation yep. today, so imagine she's popping up on oh, a third chair. Oh, I'm so yes. lovely. Hi, hi. hi. It's really um, nice to meet you. So finally. my question, so my question for Vita yeah. is, Vita, as a as a person mm -hmm. with concern about the direction of mm -hmm. our nation mm -hmm. and uh, our sense of the public mm -hmm. and our sense of community and our sense of justice. Mm -hmm. For everybody, mm -hmm. which does look different now mm -hmm. from then. Mm -hmm. Vita, what would you do now with your life, given that we've all got the vote mm -hmm. and perhaps we're all taking it for granted mm -hmm. a little too mm -hmm. much? Vita, what would you do? You'd be Vita. Okay, I'm going to channel Vita. Yeah, channel this Vita. is not so far, far um, out of the bounds of possibility because yeah. because a lot of these people were actually spiritual, including Alfred Deacon. Yes. Vita herself was never a spiritualist. But she was a Christian scientist, and the Christian scientists believe in faith healing, and that's in, indeed what she ended up doing. She ended up um, bowing out of public life and became a, a faith healer. And she was very spiritual, and, and indeed very much part of her mission was one to raise the spiritual tone of, of society around the world. So channeling her doesn't feel quite so weird because there is an historical context for it. Um, it would be, this is an interesting conversation to have as Vida because I'm also very aware that history is not us with funny clothes on, by which I mean we can't really use history to, you know, to just take it and cut and paste it into our contemporary lives and our contemporary sensibilities. We can see how our contemporary sensibilities might have been shaped by or changed since um, the past and how those processes happen, but it's very difficult to cut and paste. And one of the main things about Vida is that, you know, now if she was sitting, sitting here speaking the words of her time, she would be a racist. Yes. And it would be hard to necessarily kind of embrace her as the bosom buddy I like to think of her as. Mm -hmm. Because she would be, so she was incredibly progressive for her time. She was a radical, and yet she would be seen as quite conservative in so many respects. Not least of which is the whole aspect of this first book that's called Purity. Okay, so let me just drill down into that concept for a minute. The reason why it's white, the colour of purity is white, does reflect uh, a racial quality. But more than that, it was seen that if women had power in society, if they had political power, if they had the vote and were therefore able to influence and change public policy, they would purify the world. And this would mean um, an end to all sorts of vices that were particularly seen to impact on the lives of women and children being alcohol, gambling, prostitution, greed and corruption, particularly in politics. So some of the, you know, the idea that we could maybe ameliorate greed and corruption in politics, that still applies, obviously. Um, but some of these other ideas later in the, you know, as the 20th century wears on, starts to see them looking like that expression we now have, like wowzers, you know, yes, like that yes. like they weren't very fun time gals. Yes. Okay. Now, actually, they were hilarious 
and they had a lot of fun doing what they were doing, and that's what I hope comes out in the book. They were not buttoned-up fuddy-duddies, um, what, the, what they look like to us now, you know, with their sleeves that go to here and their necklines that go to here and their dresses that go to the floor. They were having a riotous good time, and they were so much more disruptive, and they were so much more risk-taking, and they were so much more badly behaved than any of the tattooed radical feminists that we have today. And I don't mean to to um, dismiss the effect that any of those women are having today, but no one's going for, to jail for what they're doing on for the things they're saying on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And mm. 750 of these women went to jail for what they were doing at the time. So to come back to Vida, she'd be a funny person to interview in this context. The thing that I think that she would like to comment on is this idea of representation and women having representation in Parliament. It was very important to her, so important that she stood five times for a seat in Parliament in Australia. The first time in 1903, which was the first year that Australian women could both vote and stand for election, she ran for the Senate in Victoria. She didn't win, but she got 50,000 votes, which was remarkably was a quarter of the vote. And she stood as an independent. She stood as an independent five times. And that is the reason it's considered that she lost. Because if she had have joined the Labor Party, which is she was probably most closely politically aligned to at the time because she was also a socialist, she almost without doubt would have won. But she was seen to split the ticket and she wouldn't because she thought it would lower her principles to jo- join the Labor Party. And her number one principle was uh, representing the rights of women and children in Parliament, which she felt she couldn't do as part of a political party because the other platforms and agendas of the political party would always have to subsume that and she'd always have to vote on party lines. So she didn't. But she was very, very strident in her belief that there should be women in Parliament. And the reason being is she said, we have representatives of our mining interests, we have representatives of our farming interests, we have representatives of our commercial and financial interests, of our merchants and our business people and our legal community, but we have no representatives of the home. So this is the other part of this purity argument that sounds a little bit um, foreign to our ears now, is that the other reason that women were supposed to have the capacity to rule the world was because they ruled the home. So in their, just as they did as mothers, that they had skills of negotiation, uh, they taught their children to share, they taught their children to take turns, and that it was these kinds of values and virtues that they were going to bring to what they called national housekeeping and global housekeeping. And the world would be set at rights because women would come in and clean it up just as they cleaned up their homes. And so there was no, um, you know, we're very uncomfortable with that idea now because we don't essentialise women mm. and their essential feminine skills. Mm. Our, our, our rhetoric of equality has moved much more towards we should be able to do what men do yes. and, and, and act and behave like men, <laughs> and that's the standard of equality that has kind of been set. Work like men drink and smoke like men, have sex like men, whereas actually women were saying, we want to have control of our bodies, we only want to have sex when we want to have them, we want to make, have smaller families, um, we want men to stop drinking and smoking and spending their paychecks on gambling, and, um, and this is going to be 
a, a better place. Vida would be very upset to see the rates of representation in Parliament today, mm-hmm. which, as Penny Wong pointed out um, in the Senate a couple of weeks ago, Australia is now ranked 50th in the world. So we started up here, literally up here, and we ended up, at the moment, we are ranked down with Somalia and you know, other countries like that. And, and the reason is because our conservative parties have not kept up. So the Labor Party, because it introduced quotas, is almost at 50% representation, and the Liberal Party is very not there and, and going backwards. So these kinds of discussions that we're having about the bullying of female parliamentarians, the slut-shaming of them, Liberal parliamentarians, female uh, quitting because they say they can't deal with this bullying and harassment anymore, that this shouldn't be part of the culture of the place, and the fact that we're still having these debates now, I think would shock and dismay the woman to my right here. Because even in 1922, when she came back, travelled in Europe after the First World War, she was part of the women's um, peace and conciliation networks because they weren't allowed to go to Geneva and be part of the actual peace talks. Women set up their own congresses for this uh, and they were in fact the only ones who allowed Germany to come to the table, a representative of Germany to be there because mm-hmm. they felt you can only have true democratic outcomes if you talk with your enemies. And um, Vida came back in 1922 and she was shocked at what was going on in Australian society and she felt that Australian women had squandered the, the um, advantages that had been won for them by her generation of women because all these <coughs> 1920s girls wanted to do was race around in short skirts <laughs> and smoke and drive cars and go to the movies and none of them were particularly interested in um, their, their political rights. So she wanted women to be politically informed, politically educated, politically engaged and be representatives in politics. And I'm not sure that I think now we probably, as you say, very much take our vote for granted. And I suppose that's the other thing I hoped that this book would do at a time where internationally democracy is at a low ebb and our, our, we're, we, we are culturally disillusioned with democracy, was to go back to a time, to immerse people in a time where democracy was so important that people would fight so hard for their piece of the democratic pie. Thanks. I'll take a couple of questions now, if anyone has. Yes, the yeah, one in the front. I'm interested. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Thanks. okay. So the 1891 petition that you're referring to is the Victorian Monster Petition. And so uh, that was uh, influential in a number of ways. So that's obviously pre-Federation, so it was just the colony of Victoria at that stage. And women's suffrage legislation had started to go before the colonial parliaments from the early 1880s, um, and, and Victoria was the first one in 1884. And, and what would happen was that they would pass the lower house and then they would always get stymied in the upper house. So the lower house was the people's house. It was fully democratic, as long as you don't include women in a democracy. <laughs> and the upper house still had property qualifications. Uh, so it was generally held by those with money and, and power and um, the squatocracy. 
And so it would pass the lower house, it would get to the upper house, and they'd reject it. So in 1891, um, the Premier said, if you said to the women of Victoria, if you can show that enough women are interested in getting the vote, then I will put um, up another bill and I will personally support it, which he felt would mean that it would have the chance of going further in the upper house. But one of the arguments that was always put is that women's suffrage wasn't something that all women wanted or even most women. It was just something that, that a kind of few blue-stocking, wowsery kind of over-educated, under-utilised, uh, you know, bored kind of doctor's wives and, um, wanted. And so the women of Victoria organised, and one of the reasons why this is very important is because this is where Vida gets her, um, her political nous from because her mother was a suffragist and her mother had been working in the slums of Collingwood and and, um, and Fitzroy and Carlton and she went into those areas collecting signatures of women. So women all over Victoria went out with pens and paper and collected signatures and, and Vida went with her mother and started doing that as well and she got to see how people lived. So she was well brought up, she went to PLC, um, she was an educated middle class girl, expected really to just go onto the social scene and then she saw how women and children were actually living, the situations of dire poverty, of course 1891 is now we're talking about a period of depression um, in, in Australia and this changed her life. And so very important for her biographically. That petition collected more signatures than any petition ever had prior uh, and when it was put up into Parliament um, and uh, they collected over 30,000 signatures in six weeks, it was put into Parliament and the Premier did back it but still it didn't get up in the Upper House and indeed Victoria became the last Parliament to grant women the state suffrage in 1908. So it was very important because I think not only for Vida on an individual level, but it really um, cemented this idea of collective action and that there was power in numbers and that there, that there was a movement, that, that she and, and was part of a movement and that she could lead a movement as well. So once you got that sort of swelling sense of um, the collectivity of interests, and I think that becomes very key to a lot of things that then happen, and particularly once they go to Britain and start to, to shake things up in Britain. So did it help the federal enfranchise? No. Oh. Not, not in any, not in any um, procedural <laughs> way. No. The fed, what helped the federal franchise was what happened in South Australia. Okay. Yes, we can thank them for that. That's what, another question. Yes. That. Beautiful public monument yeah. behind behind Treasury. Yeah. So that scrolly thing yeah. that you go past um, on the number eleven tram as you're going into town behind um, behind Treasury is a monument to the um, the suffrage petition. Not that you kind of necessarily know it unless you went down and you read it. I have a bit of trouble seeing Vita as a racist, or at least I did. And so, could you put me right? My view with her on race was from woman voter obviously when she was the editor. And it first came up in an editorial when she said an Indian, Mr Singh, was being deported because he wasn't a good citizen. And if Mr Singh can fight for us, then he's good enough to be a citizen. And then they had leader, I think. It was 1917 and it was obviously an issue in the Women's Political Association. And they had a conference on it and they concluded from that conference 
Well, basically, a man's a man for a woman. In spite yes. of economic considerations and racial purity, we have to oppose white Australia because a man's a man for all of that, in inverted commas. That doesn't sound like a racist. Yep, no, it's a good, it's a good point. Um, she was above all a humanist. And she believed in the brotherhood of, ma of man very staunchly. She did, however, support the White Australia policy. And there's a letter that she writes when she's travelling to London in 1911. And she, she goes to Colombo and it's the first time that she's really seen um, black people on the street and been part of a society in which black people are there. And she, she concludes from that that actually the white, white and black men can't live as equals because they debase each other. And, and she, she decides at that point, um, she's in the logic and the wisdom of the white Australia policy, that, that the co-mingling of the races in general is not good for either of them. That it, draw, that it brings the white man down because he can't help but to treat black men, the black man poorly and it does nothing for the dignity of the black man to be treated poorly. And, um, and it's, it's a, in a rickshaw ride that she, one of the things that she, she sees, you know, that the black men pulling white men around, that she decides this. So it, it probably is very harsh, actually, to just call her straight out a racist, and I will actually come back from that. If I can say that she did believe in the wisdom of the white Australia policy um, at that particular point in time, she didn't stand up for the rights of Indigenous people in Australia who were losing their rights. I can't find any of the suffragists who did. She would have been far too dignified and, and sensitive to speak in the language that some of those politicians were. But the fact of the matter is, is that they were, it would take another generation of feminists like Jessie Street to start to realise that the less fortunate sisters that Australian women were obliged to fight for was their, the Indigenous women at home, whereas at this particular point in time, the women who are the Daughters of Freedom in this book, when they talk about their less fortunate sisters and who they feel obliged to fight for, they're talking about their British sisters and going and working on, on their behalf to win the rights that they deserve. One more question. We have one more? Yes. It sounds fascinating. I cannot wait to read it. I'd like to know, what was happening in South Australia around the turn of the century to actually propel such progressive behaviour? And if we can compare our situation now, do you feel like we might be stagnating because there's less of a fight, or because there's more resistance, or a combination of both? What can we learn from what was happening in South Australia and transport it to our time now? So what happened in South Australia isn't necessarily... It's a great story, um, and it has... Um, incredible consequences but it, the initiation of it how it actually happened isn't a great story of, of political uh, will and magnanimity it is about a case of a big political belly flop gone wrong okay so without giving too much of the story away because it is a great story and I do don't try give don't away. give too no. much away <laughs> all right so this situation that I've described of the lower in the upper house uh, so the same in, in, in South Australia, legislation has gone through the lower house, it gets to the upper house, and every time it gets scuttled in the upper house. But there's this particular moment in South Australian politics where there's a non-conservative majority in the upper house. There's a coalition of non-conservative forces, just the way the numbers fell at a particular election. And so it looks like 
this suffrage bill is actually going to pass for the first time because the Labor Party have made women's suffrage part of its platform. And if there's a lesson, that's it, is to actually... That, that's what one, that this particular suffrage campaigner, Mary Lee, saw that she needed to do, is she needed to get the women's issue, the, the, the suffrage, tied up in the wider Labor po politics and that it was changing their policy that was going to make the difference because then you would have politicians voting for it, that it wasn't a conscience vote, basically. It was going to be party platform. And that was the real difference. So it goes through, but there's this particular moment um, where it looks like the bill's going to get up. So a Conservative member adds a second clause to it that women should have the right to vote and stand for Parliament, and he thinks that no one will go for that <laughs> because not even women are asking for that. That's not what... The, so he puts in a kind of, you know, an amendment to add to the bill to make it more progressive, and that's what goes through. It's a bit of an accident. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then it's what happens next that's really important as well. The South Australian women, then, the next important thing that happens is these federation conventions, the constitutional conventions. And those women basically lobby their husbands who are in positions of importance because Australian, South Australian women have now voted men into those positions at the constitutional convention. The first time women had voted on anything, they voted for those men. So those men are now beholden to the female voters. And those voters... Um, are now saying, we want you to push this through as a uniform voting rights. And so I think the lessons from South Australia are, use your power as voters. You know, we have power as voters. Our votes matter and they count. And what became um, one of the complex issues for Vida that she didn't see coming, things Vida didn't see coming, was that women wouldn't necessarily vote along gender lines. And that's why she didn't get up, because women voted along class lines. And women became very good organisers, but who they became organisers for were for the Labor Party. And so that's how Australia got, also became the first country in the world to have an elected Labor government, which happened in 1910, because Labor women became expert mobilisers and organisers and basically won that election for the Labor Party, a fact that was acknowledged at the time. Um, so organise, mobilise, use your vote. And I think, for me, because I get asked the question, you know, can we read something of this generation of disruptors into the current Me Too movement? And I think that if there's parallels there, the thing for me is that it's really important to have collective goals and aims. Um, and rather than being... I think we're very fragmented now. We're fragmented in what we want to as an outcome, and we're fragmented in terms of the way we go about getting that. Um, I think social media is an incredible tool for communication, but it doesn't necessarily bring us together um, or create a collective sense of identity or unity or purpose. Um, but it can, so that maybe that's a But it can, so, it ma can. so maybe that is. Yeah. But I think that there's... Um, I think that it is having a goal that is really important as well. Not just uh, sort of um, negative goals, yes. like things you don't want to see happen anymore, like <laughs> sexual harassment. You know, that's... Of course we don't want to see that, like, duh. 
But what do we want to see? What do we want to have come out of that? What positive um, structural change can we see? And then how can we get together and fight for that and use our vote to make that happen? So I promised you we'd get back to the sun rising, and we did. Um, I really, we're unfortunately out of time in terms of the discussion. I really want to thank Claire for uh, this epic channeling of the energy of women like Vida Goldstein and her sisters. Thank you. Um, and I'll just close with a little provocation for okay. you, private provocation. Okay, yes. Would you ever run for parliament? No. Okay. Okay. Um, that, that was easy. Short answer. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Yeah. 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 Which is no. a really interesting question for every woman and man in this room. It's like, why aren't more people like us yep. putting their hands up and um, getting on the ballot paper so that we all have yep. more diversity in our choices? So uh, I'll leave you with that thought, really. Do you want yeah. to add anything? To only, that? I, you know, I say that very quickly, and I mean it, but only because, not because I don't think that it's a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. I, don't, um, I think I completely agree with you. More women should do it, but I don't think I necessarily have the right skill set for it. I, I disagree. With you. I don't think I have the personality. Um, the temperament. <laughs> well, you don't know me well enough. Then we need to we, we need to do more drinking. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but not smoking. That's not allowed. No. No, I think that it takes a particular... I think I have a variety of inner strengths, but um, I... Th okay, here, here's, here's my provocation. I think you need to have grown up with siblings, mm -hmm. and I think you, know, you, have, you need to know how to beat them. And you need well, to want okay. to beat them. Yeah. And I think having grown up as an only child, I'm far too... Uh, I'm not nearly combative enough. Okay, so we'll settle for specialist slash campaign advisor. Speechwriter. Okay, speechwriter. Okay. So yeah. when Penny yeah. Wong is Prime Minister, yeah. I would love to be her speechwriter. <laughs> Thank you. That was Claire Wright in conversation with Natasha Cheecher late last year. If you're keen to read You Daughters of Freedom or any of Claire's other books, please pop into your local branch or place a reservation online. We run regular author talks and discussions at all branches of Yarra Libraries, so please keep an eye on our website. For you, we'd recommend Witches, What Women Do Together, where Sam George Allen will discuss everything from girl bands to ballet troops, convents to covens. She'll be in conversation with Kill Your Darlings Ellen Cregan at Bagungananyan North Fitzroy Library on March 27th. In the meantime, Yarra Libraries promises not to crack the spines of impractically chunky titles. Happy reading! Our theme music is Ad And by Broke for Free.